Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. So we're going to be studying Revelation chapter 9 tonight. But before we jump into Revelation chapter 9, it, it is a continuation. Come on through, Kathy. You want to be on the video again? She likes being on, on TV. Um, chapter 8 and chapter 9 go together because they're all in relationship to the seven trumpet judgments. Okay, so there's three sets of judgments in the book of Revelation. You got the sealed judgments, you got the trumpet judgments, and you got the bowl judgments. Right now, come on in, guys, we're in the midst of what are called the trumpet judgments. And in chapter 8, we only saw the first four of the, the types of judgments that they are. And if you guys remember, I'm just going to kind of review chapter 8 real quick. So the first trumpet is one-third of the grass and trees burn up. So the natural vegetation, one-third of the natural vegetation burns up. Second trumpet, one-third of the sea, the ocean turns to blood. Trumpet number three, a third of the freshwater sources turn to bitter bitterness. And then the last one was a third of the sun, moon, and stars are darkened. So at this point, again, you know, one-third... Is this like literally one-third, like 33% and no more and no less? Um, or is it just a, a way of saying a lot? Again, don't ask me. I'm not that sure. One thing I do know, and you guys tell me, what do all four of these judgments have in common? What are they all related to? The plagues and Exodus. The what? The plagues and Exodus. Okay, the plagues and Exodus. What are they all in relationship to? Earth, sea, freshwater, stars, they're all what? Related to nature. They're all related to the natural order. Okay, so the first four trumpet judgments relate to the natural order. Okay, now as we get into chapter 9, the focus is going to shift away from like things happening out there to nature to things happening personally to people and their very bodies and souls and minds. So... Those are the first four of the trumpets. As we get to chapter 9, we get to the fifth trumpet, which is also the first of the three woes. And remember, what's a woe? A woe is a curse or a woe is a, a calling down of judgment. So let's read chapter 9, verses 1 through 11. And, and again, guys, um, don't expect me to explain this fully because even after studying this again this week, there's still some mystery as to what this really is about, okay? So, you guys ready to dive in? Here we go. Chapter 9, verse 1. The fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth, and he, pay attention to that, the star is a he, he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. 
Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces, their hair like women's hair, their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions, and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. They have his king over them, the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon. In Greek, he's called Apollyon. You guys ready to go home now? You understand that? It's per- perfectly. It's, you guys. So... I want you to notice that this is the first time the star is referred to in personal pronoun he, not it. So who is the fallen star that is allowed to open up the bottomless pit? Most scholars see that as a reference to Satan, who himself was a fallen angel okay so where do we get that in the bible well if you go back to isaiah chapter 14 verses 12 through 15 you have an old testament reference to probably what happened to satan when he was in heaven before he became satan okay so what do we know about satan before he became satan he was an angel right probably one of the highest orders of angels and so Isaiah 14, 12-15, most scholars believe this is probably what happened to Satan in heaven before he fell and before the Lord cast him to the earth. So let's read this. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. Now, does anybody have the King James Version with them tonight? You want to look at Yeah, Nick, why don't you look up, look up Isaiah 14, 12 in the King James it's, not, it's only in the King James Version. It's not in the, in the modern translations, but you may, it just kind of helps you understand a term that you probably know the term. Um, so, yeah. How art thou fallen, O heaven, from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? Okay, so Lucifer. So the King James Version translates day star, son of the dawn, as Lucifer. Okay, so um, that's kind of where that name Lucifer comes from, from the King James Version. But the original translation is, is day star, son of the dawn. What does this Revelation passage say? He saw a star fallen from where? Fallen from heaven. What does this say? Oh, how you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend to the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down the Sheol to the far reaches of what? The pit. Do you see some parallels there? 
Satan is called the, the star of the morning that fell, and he fell down to the pit. And what was the reason he fell? What's he saying there? I will, I will, I will. I want to be greater than God. I want to be higher than God. So God, nobody can be higher than God, and so his punishment is he, he's thrown down to the far reaches of the pit. Okay, so um, whatever's happening here in chapter 9 is all the work of Satan, and we'll get to that in just a moment. Now, in Luke chapter 10, we also have another reference of this whole idea of Satan being like a star falling from heaven. So Luke chapter 10, 17 through 20, in Luke chapter 10, Jesus sends his disciples out two by two to go share the gospel. They come back, they're excited because people were being um, saved and they were healing the sick and all these wonderful things were happening. And so um, let's pick up in verse 17, the 72 returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said, and that's Jesus, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So this is probably in Revelation chapter 9, the star that's fallen from heaven that was given the key to the bottomless pit is probably none other than Satan. And so he opens the bottomless pit and what comes out of the bottomless pit? Verse 3, Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth and they were given power like the power of scorpions on the earth. Now, before we understand what these locusts are and what they symbolize, because remember, are these literal locusts coming out of hell? Okay, probably not. Probably symbolic of something. But let's just talk about locusts. In Exodus chapter 10, the eighth plague was the plague of locusts that devoured the land. Um, you don't necessarily have to go back to these passages of Scripture, but you may want to write them down. Deuteronomy 28, 42, Psalm 78, 46, Joel 1, 4, Amos 4.9 and Nahum 3.15 all speak about locusts devouring the land as an act of judgment. So all throughout the Old Testament, locusts devouring the land is a picture of God's judgment. Okay? So the locusts would come in the Old Testament. They would come in swarms. And what would they do? They would physically destroy the vegetation. But here, what are they told not to do? Verse 4, they were told not to harm the grass or earth or any green plant. So what did locusts, what do physical locusts do in the Old Testament? You've seen them. They come through and they just devour the trees, devour everything. God's giving, saying, don't devour the vegetation. Who, who are you supposed to attack? This is where it gets scary, guys. Only those people, verse 4, who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They're told, they're given permission to torment non-believers who've not been sealed, who've not trusted Christ for salvation. Okay. Why only five months? Is that a literal amount of time? Figurative amount of time. Why only five months? Well, the life cycle of, an, of a locust is actually five months as they're hatched in the spring and they die at the end of summer. But... Five in the book of Revelation is also a symbol for a few. 
Like a thousand, we know is a symbol for what? Long time. Five is a symbol for not that long. So I don't know how long, if it's a literal five months or if it's for a, a, a short amount of time. The issue is, what are these locusts? They're demonic beings who are sent out by Satan to inflict emotional, physical, and psychological pain on non-Christians. Okay, so let's just ask a question. I want to ask a theological question tonight. Does God sovereignly ordain Satan's and demons to do his work? Yes. And here's why. I want you to just read this carefully. Okay. Look at verse 3. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth. They were given power. Okay, who gave them power? They were given power. Okay. Verse 4. They were told not to harm the grass. Who told them not to do that? Okay. Verse 5. They were allowed to torment them for five months. So somehow in God's sovereignty, He is ordaining that Satan open the bottomless pit and allow these demonic forces to come out and wreak havoc on non-Christians. So the question... Yes, Nick? So when they become like the way we destroy Yep. And that's where we're going next. <laughs> Read Job 1. That's where we're actually literally going next. So hold your Bible and Revelation and let's turn to Job. Because some people think that the universe, some Christians think the universe works like yin and yang. God and Satan are equal and opposing forces. God makes a move, Satan makes a move, God makes a move, Satan makes a move. God makes a move, doesn't know what Satan's going to do. Satan makes a move, doesn't know what God's going to do. And at the end of the day, who wins the chess match? Well, probably God because he's smarter than Satan. That, there's a Greek word for that. It's called baloney. That's not the way it works, okay? God is sovereign even over Satan. So here's the thing, guys. Satan is a creature. He's a created being. He's not omnipotent. He's not omnipresent. And he's not omniscient. Okay? So Satan cannot read your mind. And he can't be in all places at once. And he's not all-powerful. Satan can only do what God allows him to do. And that can be encouraging or that can be scary. Because if you're experiencing any type of demonic, and we're going to talk about this in a minute, if you're experiencing any type of demonic struggle, it's not just random where Satan has free reign and he's doing it without God's permission. Okay? So let's read Job. So I want to pick up in verse 6. Job chapter 1, verse 6. Uh, you know, like the first, basically the first five verses, Job was a righteous man and he had a bunch of stuff. Okay? He was, he was a prosperous man. Okay? Now, I wish we could do the whole book of Job tonight, but we're just going to do the first chapter. So, Okay, so verse 6. Now there was a day, and by the way, let me just stop right here. I want you guys to pray for me. I don't often ask this, but this Sunday sermon is one of the most difficult sermons I've ever preached. And the reason why is the passage of Scripture is the most difficult passage of Scripture in the entire Old Testament. And scholars are baffled. And so I'm having, I'm going to say a lot of things on Sunday where most of the things I'm going to say is like, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. So sometimes the Bible tells you things that you can say, I can, I can, 
I can be pretty sure about that. Sometimes the Bible tells you things and you're like, your best answer is, I don't know. So the question is, there was a day when the sons of God, when was that day? I don't know. Was it in heaven? I don't know. All I know is there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came among them. Do you guys have a footnote in your Bible that tells you what the word Satan means? Accuser, accuser, or adversary, the enemy. Okay. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Now, obviously, does God not know where Satan is? What's the first thing God says to Adam and Eve after they sin? Adam, where, why are you hiding? Sometimes when God asks questions in the Old Testament, it's not because God doesn't have the answer. It's God's in the courtroom and he's in the judge, and God is asking the question to show that he's the one in authority. Satan, where have you been? Satan says, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down in it. And the Lord said to Satan, this is the scary part, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Okay, so who points out Job to Satan? God. So the, so the Bible doesn't say... Satan came into God and said, hey, I've been going to and fro from the earth and I've seen this guy named Job. Let me attack him, Lord. Can I attack him? That's not what happens. What happens? God says, I'm giving you permission to go attack Job. Yes, Nick. Yeah, to survey the enemy. Mm -hmm. Have you considered my servant Job? And then look at what this is very interesting. Look at verse 9. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? So that's the whole point of the book of Job. If you want to know the whole book of Job, it's in verse 9. What's the argument that Satan makes to God? The only reason, the only reason Job is serving you, God, is because of what you've blessed him with. So it's like a prosperity gospel thing. Because you've given Job all this stuff, because he has stuff, God, that's the only reason he's worshiping you. He's not worshiping you because you're worthy to be worshipped. He's worshiping you because of the stuff you've given him. Take the stuff away and see if he worships you or if he worships the stuff that you're giving him. So look at the next thing. Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him, his house and all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Okay. This should not sit well with you. Because God is sovereignly ordaining that Job go through trials. So one thing I want to talk to you about tonight, and I didn't, I didn't think I'd go down this trek, but I think I need to. The Bible often talks about... This is not in your notes, so... The Bible often talks about primary cause and secondary cause. this. Because the first thing you're probably thinking is, well, this makes God sound a little, makes God sound a little 
like, I don't know about this. Why would God do this? Okay, so let's establish, let's establish two things that the Bible establishes. Who is the primary cause of everything that happens in the world? God. God's the primary cause because God is creator. God ordains the end from the beginning. God has an eternal decree. God is the one who ordained. God was the primary cause who ordained Job's suffering. What's the secondary cause that carried it out? Did God directly do that to Job? Okay, what's the secondary cause? Satan. And as you'll see, the Chaldeans, the Sabaeans, the wind. Okay, so let's keep reading. Now there was a day, verse 13, Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing, and the donkeys feeding beside them, and the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Okay. So what happens? All of Job's animals, livestock, get destroyed by who? The Sabaeans. Now, the Sabaeans, did God have to put a gun to the head of the Sabaeans and say, Hey, Sabaeans, go out and destroy? What did the Sabaeans do? The Sabaeans did what they wanted to do. Now, did the Sabaeans have any idea that they were, they were under God's sovereign purview? No, they were acting freely, doing what they wanted to do, but at the same time, they were doing what God ordained to happen. Okay? So the Sabaeans are a secondary cause of what's happening here. Okay, verse 16, While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and condemned them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Now, who's the primary cause of this? Pretty directly God right there. Okay, the fire of God fell. Okay, so that's primary cause. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Okay, so you got the Chaldeans, another group of pagan invaders. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters are eating and drinking wine in the oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people, and they were dead, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And all this Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Now, Question, did ever once Job blame Satan for what happened? In Job's mind, who does he think is doing this to him? God. Okay. Now, here's the privilege we have. We have the privilege of being what they call the omniscient narrator, where we can see, we can read the story and know what's going on. What's going on in the heavenly courtroom? God is pointing out Job to Satan. Does Job have any clue that's happening? From Job's perspective, what does he see? These things are happening to me. All Job sees is, man, the Chaldeans are mean. The Sabaeans are mean. That strong wind was strong. That fire was mean or hot. And he says, God did all this. The, God, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Okay. Now, you can read the whole best rest of the book of Job, and he suffers and he suffers, and his friends come to him, and you know they have a bunch of different things to tell him. Finally, God shows up to Job, and you're expecting Job, uh, you're expecting God to give Job an answer. What's been Job's answer the whole time? 
Why, 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 why am I suffering? Why am I suffering? And you expect God to show up. Okay, God's going to give the answer. What does God say to Job? Brace yourself like a man. And Job, God just says, where were you when I created the heavens and the earth? Where were you when I did all this stuff? And so you get to the very end and you get to chapter 42, verse 2. Job chapter 42, verse 2. Well, let's look at verse 1, Job 42, verse 1, the last chapter. The Lord answered, the, then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be what? Thwarted. Thwarted. What's thwarted mean? Stopped. Stymied. Messed with. Okay? Now, interestingly, the Lord restores all of his fortune and his relatives come and they eat bread. And look at verse 11 of chapter 42. Then came to him all his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before and ate bread with him in his house. And they showed him sympathy and comfort for all the evil that the Lord brought upon him. Well, who brought the evil upon Job? Was it the Lord? Okay. Did the Lord do evil? Did the Lord directly do evil? Did the Lord ordain evil? Who did the evil? Satan, the Chaldeans, the Sabines, and the wind, I guess. If, all right, so in the fire, yeah. Earth, wind, and fire, okay? Yeah, the fire. So my point is this. All throughout the Bible, when Satan is carrying out his evil plans, he can only do what the Lord permits him to do, and he can't go beyond that. Satan's not a rogue being that's out there thwarting the will of God. So that can either bring you great encouragement or that could be a little scary because who's to say God may not be ordaining you to go through some type of trial that could be a spiritual warfare in nature? And God's ordaining that for your good. I don't know how to answer that, and I don't know how to qualify it. Nick? Yeah, I mean, I wanted to jump ahead to chapter 2 real quick. And it says, Are you back in Job? Yeah. Okay. Uh, Satan wants his son to sin, uh, that all men will endure uh, vengeance for his life. God said, Go after him, but don't kill him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the encouragement would be whatever you're going through, it's God's sovereign plan, and He will be with you through it all, and nothing can happen outside of what He is allowing to happen. And I don't know if that brings you comfort. Okay. It's like, yeah. So it should bring you great comfort in the sovereignty of God that. Satan does the work of the Lord in a very mysterious way. I don't, don't ask me how I understand how it all works. All I know is you got the book of Job, and you've got this passage in Revelation 9 where it seems and appears like God's the one that's sovereignly permitting and allowing and ordaining for Satan to allow these demons to go out and torment. Okay? 
chapter 9. That's where we are. So, who are these locusts? And how do they torment? They are none other than demonic beings who inflict emotional, spiritual, and psychological pain on non-Christians, so much so that they want to commit suicide just to get rid of the pain. Now, let's just stop and say um, there's different ways of interpreting what's going on here. Last week, you remember I talked about the dispensational viewpoint, which is the more popular viewpoint that looks at a literal seven-year tribulation. Um, the dispensational view would say that this is demon possession of non-believers for a literal five months during a seven-year tribulation. Others see it as symbolic of demonic influence on culture, which will intensify towards the very end. I don't know. I don't know if this is going to happen towards the end. I don't know if this is going to happen right now. What's the one thing I know? Okay, here's the one thing I know. The one thing we need to take away from this is that demons are real, and they do inflict torment on non-believers. And how all the details work out, you can't escape the fact that demons are real. They're real beings, and they inflict torment. Now, that's not to say, what, I, what I'm not saying is that every non-Christian is demon-possessed. That's not what I'm saying. Okay? What I'm, what I'm saying is, is that probably sometime toward the end, there's going to be an intensification of demonic oppression on non-Christians, so much so that it's going to cause so much psychological pain that they're going to want to commit suicide on a grander scale than what you see right now. Again, I, 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 we can't be dogmatic on this because I don't think there's just enough to, to be dogmatic. Now these demons look a little strange, don't they? What do they look like? Well, they've got, they look like horses. They've got crowns. This is in verse 7. Uh, verse 8, their hair is like women's hair, their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron. Noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with the horses rushing into battle. They have tails that sting like scorpions. Their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. Don't know if that's literally what they look like, symbolically what they look like, but you step back and you're like, that's pretty hideous. Regardless of what it is, that's a hideous picture. Okay? Now, who is the leader? Verse 11. They have a king over them. They have a king. Who's the king of the demons? The angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon. In Greek, his name is Apollyon. Um, Apollyon comes from a Greek word. It's an inter interesting Greek word there, Apollyon. It comes from the Greek word Apollomy. Apollomy means perish. So in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him should not Apollomy, but have eternal life. The word Apollomy in that Greek text means to perish in hell. It means to spend forever in hell. Okay. Apollyon means the destroyer or the one that causes... The, the destroyer or the one that is going to perish in hell the destroyer. 
So even Satan's name is connotated with perishing in, in hell. He's the destroyer. He's the, it means destruction. Now, who's not going to get affected by the demonic onslaught? Go back to verse 4. If you have the seal of God on your forehead, you are protected from this. And remember who has the seal of God on their forehead back to chapter 7? It's just a symbol of believers. Okay? So think about, we haven't gotten there on Sunday mornings yet to the plagues in Exodus, but as, Israel, as the Israelites were protected from the plagues in Goshen, we as the new Israel, the church, will be protected from this demonic plague as well. It's not going to affect us. Now, let's ask a practical question because I know this is what you're going to ask. So I'm, I'm anticipating the question. Three questions maybe that you're anticipating, okay? So let's get real practical. Question one, number one. Can a Christian be demon-possessed? Now, before I answer it, there's three ways the New Testament describes somebody interacting with a demon. There's three different ways it's described in the New Testament. Number one, it just says, this is the most common, 16 times, it just says a person had a demon. It meant that a person was indwelt and controlled or tormented by a demon. They had a demon. The demon was living inside them. They were, the word demon possessions never really used in the New Testament, it just said they had a demon. Okay? The other word is being demonized. That occurs 13 times. Being demonized, that is more the idea of being under demonic influence. So I think somebody can literally have a demon in them. Someone can be demonized in the sense that of being um, influenced. And then also the Bible says there's, there's people with an unclean spirit. So there's three ways that the Bible talks about demonic possession, oppression, things like that. So you got this passage in Matthew 12, 43-45. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, okay, when an unclean spirit has gone out of a person, what does that assume? The unclean person or the unclean spirit was where? In the person, okay. And an unclean spirit would be a demon, Obviously, a clean spirit, we would probably think would be more like a... We never, it's interesting, I just thought about this. You never hear about an angel possessing somebody. It's always an unclean spirit possessing somebody. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there, and the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also it will be with this evil generation. Okay, interesting statement by Jesus. Okay, so it sounds like, what does it sound like? The demon leaves the person, and then what does the person do? They clean up their life. They get religious. Who's he talking to here? He's talking to the Pharisees. You get religious, you get legalistic, and you look really, really good on the outside. 
But what happens? He brings back how many more? Seven, Seven more, and they actually go live in there, and the, and the person's worse off than they were the first time when the first demon was in there. Well, I think what in the context here, well, the main thing I want to show you is that an unclean spirit can live inside of a person. A, de- a, per- a demon can live inside of a person and leave a person. At least Jesus, t- seems, Jesus seems to teach here that a demon can go inside and go out of a person. How you interpret the cleaning, most scholars would say that, 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 that the house, the body was swept and cleaned is meant that the guy cleaned himself up religiously but was never truly saved. In other words, the Holy Spirit didn't come with there because if the seven demons came back and they entered him and the Holy Spirit was there, what would they, they wouldn't be able to have room to go in. Um, so, if it was what? Well, what do you mean by an exorcist? <laughs> Linda Blair spitting out green pea soup and her head spinning around? No, I'm, I'm, I'm just, you guess. It doesn't say. So, you have three terms in the New Testament, having a demon, being demonized, and having an unclean spirit. So let's answer the question. Can a Christian, a truly born-again, regenerate Christian, be demon-possessed? Let me give you the answer. If you mean by this that a Christian's will is completely dominated by a demon so that he or she has no power left to do right and obey God, then the answer is an unequivocal no. I do not believe that true Christians can be demon-possessed. And what do I mean by possessed? A demon actually inhabiting a Christian? A demon so powering a Christian that they can't get free from that? Okay? Paul says in Romans 6.14, For sin will have no dominion over you, since you're not under the law, but under grace. So let me say what I believe and what I don't believe, okay? I do not believe that a true Christian can be inhabited by a demon or an unclean spirit or be totally dominated by an unclean spirit because a true Christian has who living inside of you? The Holy Spirit. You're no longer in bondage to sin. You've been released from the domain of darkness. You have a totally brand new identity in the gospel. You have the Holy Spirit, so you cannot be inhabited or indwelt or overpowered by a demon. Now, with that being said, let me tell you what I also believe. While I do not believe that a true Christian can be demon-possessed, demons may tempt us, attack us, and distract us, but demons cannot inhabit or possess a Christian. Can you be attacked by a demon? Can you be harassed by a demon? Can you be distracted by a demon? Can you be tempted? Can you be inhabited? Can you be indwelt? Okay. Now, this is just my personal opinion. Okay. You can take it or leave it. I am not sure... If, and this is not anything against you, okay? I, and this is my opinion, so I could be totally wrong. 
I'm not sure if Satan wastes his time with people like you and me. I think Satan sends out his demons to mess with people like you and me. I think people that are in high positions and people that have a lot of influence and people that are, have a lot of following, those are the people that Satan himself goes after. That's just my personal opinion. Um, I think he sends his minions to, do, to deal with the, you know, the peons like us. So, but it doesn't mean Satan may not, because Peter says Satan does come like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Now, does that mean Satan himself comes against you or Satan sends his demons? No matter how you look at it, there are some scriptures that talk about um, this whole idea that you can't be possessed. You can be attacked. So 2 Corinthians 6, 14-16, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? That's another word for, for, for Satan. What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has a temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, as God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their people, and they shall be my God. When you become a Christian, God makes his dwelling in you through the power of the Holy Spirit, and you cannot have partnership with the demon inhabiting the same space that the Holy Spirit inhabits within you. Does that make sense? Okay. Colossians 1, 13 and 14. He, that's Jesus, has delivered us from where? The domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Okay, what's the domain of darkness? It could be the sinful life we had before we were saved, or it could be before we were saved, we were under the dominion of the powers of darkness. Okay, So you've been rescued from that. 1 John 2.13 I am writing to you, fathers, because you know Him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you because you know the Father. You've overcome the evil one. And then this is probably the most famous one. 1 John 4, 4, Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Okay? Now, let me give you some helpful observations from Scripture that... I have looked at that help us in this whole idea of demon possession, demon oppression, demon torment, whatever you want to call it. There is no clear example in the Bible where a demon ever inhabited or invaded a true believer. In every case, those that were demonized were unbelievers. So go back and read your New Testament and see if you can find any clear-cut case of a believer being inhabited by a demon. I don't think you can find it. Okay. Go back and read the epistles. Whoops. The epistles, the letters. Romans through 3 John. Never in the epistles are we warned about the possibility of being possessed by demons. Not once in Paul's writing or Peter's writing or James' writings does he say, now I warn you, as I warned you before, you can be possessed by a demon. You don't see any of that type of wording in the epistles. So it's not taught there. Never in the New Testament 
Do we see anybody rebuking demons, binding demons, or casting out demons of a true believer? Never in the epistles, the letters. Are we instructed as believers to cast out demons, really, of anybody, believers or unbelievers? Now, we see it demonstrated by Jesus in the early church, but we are not specifically commanded in the epistles to do it. Somebody tried to do it in Acts 19, and look what happened when they tried to do it. We have an example of somebody that tried it the wrong way, okay? Here's the, here's the story. This is a funny story. Acts 19, 13 through 16. Some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of, G- of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know. And Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leapt on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. Interesting story. Now, have I told you a story about that I heard from John MacArthur one time? How he, The only time John MacArthur told a story about how he ended up being confronted with the demon. So this is a secondhand story I'm telling you that, that I heard John MacArthur tell many years ago that early in his ministry, there was a woman who was really out of control and she had a deep voice and she was just really like had un, unhuman strength and they were trying to control her and they brought her into the church offices and the other associate pastors were trying to calm her down and she was just, you could tell she was, she was possessed by a demon. And so... They went and said, we got to get Pastor John because, you know, he's the lead pastor. So they went and brought John MacArthur in. And right when John MacArthur walked in, supposedly this woman said, I know you, in a real deep voice. I know you. These other people I don't know, but I know you. And so the demon obviously knew who John MacArthur was. And so he ended up just preaching the gospel to her and um, basically... You know, she, she ended up having the demon come out of her. But it's interesting. I know Jesus, I know Paul, but I don't know who you guys are. So they leapt on him. Now, question number two. Another question you may be asking. Well, how, how do I know somebody's under a demonic influence? How can demonic influences be recognized? Hmm. Again, there's not a lot of information, but let's turn in our Bibles to Mark. Mark gives some information here. Again, is this normative? Is this only during the time of Jesus? Is it the way it happens today? Again, I'm not sure. All I know is we have some biblical examples, and that's the best we can go by and and make some, I guess, some guesses or hypotheses of of this is probably what it would look like, okay? And based on other people's stories of how they've encountered the demonic. So Mark 1 Verse 23. Well, let's, let's back up to verse 21. Mark, Mark 1, 21. They went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. That's Jesus. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. Okay, there's that, that terminology. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, 
came out of him. Okay, so what's going on here? It's during the preaching of the gospel. It's during a public worship service. What's the behavior of the person being demon-possessed? They're yelling and they're railing against doctrinal teaching. And then when the demon comes out, what do they do? They convulse. So there's, there's a really combative, loud, violent opposition to the preaching of God's Word. Okay. Now let's go to Mark chapter 9, 17 through... And this is on your screen, by the way. Mark, Mark 9... Um, this is the boy with the unclean spirit. Verse 18. Whenever it, let's pick up at verse 17. Someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately convulsed the boy. And he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And it has often cast him into a fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand, lifted him up, and he arose. And when he entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out but by prayer. Now this, this passage is very personal to me because you know my youngest son is mute and he also suffers from seizures. So I can look at my son and say, well, he's had this condition his whole life. Obviously, he must be demon-possessed. Okay, am I going to go that far? No. I don't think you can make a statement that if somebody has epilepsy or somebody has special needs, that they're automatically demon-possessed. I'm not going to say that because I don't, I don't believe for a moment my son's demon-possessed. Okay, But what you see here is erratic behavior. And you look at the man that um, had a legion of demons in him. What was he doing? He was living in the graveyards. He was running around naked. He was cutting himself. Usually what you see with demonic behavior is self-inflicted type of, of, of violence done to yourself. Okay, so how can demonic influences be recognized? I don't know if I have an answer except for this. You may not like this answer. I think you'll know it when you see it. I mean, I think you'll know it when you see it. And if it freaks you out, I think you need to get out of there and not mess with it or call me or call the elders, or, or get some other Christians in there, um, I think you'll, you'll, know it, you'll, rec- you'll know it when it happens. Um, that's, my best, that's my best guess. Yes, Rico? If you feel alone, if you feel 
Yeah, how would you know someone's, yeah, how do you know if someone's possessed? I mean, again. Yeah, there's, I mean, I mean, I don't want to go so much on the heebie-jeebies, like, <laughs> I got the heebie-jeebies, I mean, but I mean, there are, there are some heebie-jeebies to it. I mean, there are some, I mean, there is some, um, you know, the only time I've ever seen the demonic was in India. I think I've told you guys a story before. So um, we go to this village, and um, there's a couple that's an older couple, and they're, they're really, really sick, and they, they supposedly had professed faith in Christ, but they had abandoned Christ to go to the local witch doctor, and they'd got all these talismans and put them in their house, hoping that the witch doctor and the talismans and all, talismans and all of the, the voodoo, Indian, you know, quasi-Hinduism, animism stuff would help them. And so they wanted us to come pray with them. And I told the interpreter, I said, I'll pray with them, but they really need to hear the gospel. So I'm going to, can I preach the gospel to them before I pray with them? He's like, sure. So I'm on the front porch and I begin, literally begin to share the gospel. And the witch doctor lady comes flying into the camp. She's doing all this weird stuff and stuff. And then she kept like getting up in my face and her eyes were like glazed over. You could tell she was demon possessed. And I don't know what my interpreter said to her. He said something to her, and she stopped like that. And she almost got in like a catatonic state. And I preached the gospel to this couple. I prayed with them. I said, Amen. The moment I said, Amen, she came out of her catatonic state and started causing all these problems again. Um, That was demonic. The only other time, another time in India, we walked into a village and this was the village where um, they believed in the stone god, the mountain god, and they, they worshiped the mountain. And I was trying to tell them that God is the only creator. And so I started talking about God being creator. I started talking about sin. The moment I started talking about sin, this dirt devil came through the village. Like, just like, just dirt devil, like almost mini, miniature cyclone came through there. And our missionary, you know who he is, looked at me, and, and, and I said, is that, I said, is that normal? He's like, nothing about this is normal. He's like, but keep on going, because I want to see what happens. And I'm like, well, if he doesn't think this is normal, what's going to happen here? So next thing I know, I'm just talking more about sin. And this lady at the back has this turban, and she starts tightening this turban on her head. And she starts, like, yelling at me, like, getting real mad. And, like, everybody was starting to yell at me. And I'm like, what are they saying? He's like, he's like they're getting mad because you're talking about sin. But keep talking about it. They need to hear this. And I'm like, why do you want me to keep talking? So he's like, keep going. They need to hear this. So I kept going, and, they, and like the crescendo, they kept getting madder and madder and madder. I mean, finally, um, the, the tribal chief said, enough. We've had enough. We don't want to hear any more. And so um, we ended up, up leaving the village. But there were some demonic things going on there. Um, but it was always in the context of preaching the gospel. Um, now, other people may have, and again, are those normalized stories? Do I say that's how it always happens? I think you've got to be very careful. Um, here's the third question, okay? So number one, can Christians be demon-possessed? No. Can we be tormented? Can we be, um, can we be uh, tempted and, and harassed? Yes. How, how do you recognize demonic influence? You have a few examples in the Bible there's not really a lot of information 
Question number three, how do you handle a situation where an unbeliever may appear to be demonized? What do you do? There are many schools of thought on this, from doing incantations to rituals to exorcisms to not even addressing the issue at all to deliverance ministries. I will just tell you, I personally have never rebuked a demon. I've never bound a demon. I've never cast out a demon or had any experience of this type, so I don't speak from experience except for the the ones I've shared with you. Here is the issue. This is one thing I'm sure about. The Bible does not give us much information on how to do it, just the reality that it's there. There's not a lot of information on how you do it. It's just, it's there. Now, you see the examples of how Jesus did it. And, and so, you see the examples of how Jesus did it. Now, let me ask you a question. Are any of us Jesus? Okay, so that may not be the best model. Okay, you got the apostolic model. But even after the early times in Acts, towards the end of Acts, you don't see a lot of that. So, here's the one thing I would focus on. If somebody, if somebody were to come into my office and they came in off the street and I determined that they were demon-possessed, for one thing, I would not try to do it alone. I'd call Pastor Andrew in or I'd call somebody in so that I'm not in there by myself. And here's what I would do. I would read the scripture to them. I would proclaim the gospel to them. I would talk to the person and say, you need to repent and believe in Jesus. And I would be praying like crazy that the Holy Spirit would work. Um, I don't think it's so much of a technique as it is the gospel. Yes, Nick. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot of prayer <laughs> goes into that. All right, you guys ready to get back to Revelation chapter 9? <laughs> That's where we're in Revelation chapter 9, but I, I thought because demons are tormenting non-believers, I thought you'd ask those questions about demon possession, things like that. So that's the fifth trumpet, this demonic forces going out from the abyss to torment non-believers so much so that they want to commit suicide. So verse 12 says, The first woe has passed. Behold, 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 two woes are still to come. So now we've got the second woe or the sixth trumpet. So let's read 13 to the end of the chapter. The sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur, and the heads of the horses were like lion's heads, and the fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents with heads, and by means of them they wound. We'll stop right there and get to the end here in just a moment. This is a demonic cavalry of 200 million. If I did my math right, is that verse 16, 10,000 times 10,000? Is that 200? What's 
Is that 200 million? Okay. So, again, is that a literal 200 million of these demonic forces coming out? This is pretty... I'm not exactly sure what to make of this image, but it is to evoke major fear in the hearts of those who have not been sealed by the blood of the Lamb. So, what's coming out of their mouths? Fire and smoke and sulfur. Verse 18, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouth. It's almost like they're fire-breathing demons. Yes? We're going to get to that. That's a question. That's a great question, and the Bible answers it. So hold that thought. Great question, Risa. Where else in the Bible do we see God destroying unrepentant sinners through fire and sulfur? Not coming out of demons' mouths, but where else did God destroy a people by fire and sulfur? Sodom and Gomorrah. Genesis 19.24. The Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. Now, whatever this is, we can be assured that John wants us to see the plague of death is brought on to these lost people by fire-breathing demons from hell. That one-third of the population was killed. Let's just stop. Take a time out. What is just, let's just recap, let's just recap these trumpet judgments. So, trumpet judgments. Because we've got the first six, right? One, two, three, four, five, six. Okay, what was number one? One third of the, the land, the vegetation was burned up. One third of the sea or the ocean turned to blood okay the third one one third of the fresh water has turned bitter one third of the sun moon stars affected one third have what demonic demonic possession to the point that they want to what commit suicide and then what's the sixth one here? One-third of the people are like fire-breathing demons, okay? Destroy them. One-third, 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 one-third. How many people are left on the earth if you do your math right? Two-thirds, okay? The rest... Okay, if you saw, if you were part of the two-thirds, okay, let's say the two-thirds of the lost people, the people that aren't sealed, the people that aren't Christians, and you saw all that. Here's the question, Risa. If you saw all that, what would that lead you to do? Repent. Okay, all right, this is what has startled me every time I read this chapter. Look at verses 20 and 21. The rest of mankind, two-thirds, 
who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. This has always startled me. In the midst of one-third of the earth being destroyed through both natural disasters and demonic oppression, the remaining unbelievers were so hardened in their sin that they did not repent of their wickedness. Let's ask your question a different way. Your question is if somebody was baptized and they don't believe in God anymore, okay, you've got two things there. First of all, does baptism save you? No. What saves you? Belief in Christ alone. Okay. So that's what saves you, not baptism. Belief in Christ saves you. If you're truly saved, can you fully or finally lose that salvation? No. Okay, so what are the two things we know are true? I'm going to answer your question. You're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. And once you're truly saved, you cannot lose your salvation. Okay, that's, that's true. Okay. What you're asking is, if someone got baptized, meaning they went through an outward action, a ritual of sorts, and then later on denied God, or is that person a non-believer? The question is, I don't know because I can't look at their heart, but I could say this. The Bible also speaks of those who are outwardly professing faith in Christ but may not have ever been saved. So what, the way I'd answer that, Tiffany, is they may have gotten baptized, but they were never saved. But they did it for whatever reason. And because they were never saved, when temptations come and persecutions come, when the world comes, they walk away from the faith because they never had it in the first place. Does that make sense? Okay. So just because somebody got quote-unquote baptized doesn't necessarily mean they're saved. What saves you is the grace alone in Christ alone. Christ alone saves you by grace through faith. And if He saves you, you can never be lost. Doesn't mean So I've often said there's a difference between having possession of faith and profession of faith. What's the difference? You can profess faith in Christ and not actually possess faith in Christ. Okay. Does that, does that answer your question? Yes. Okay. Now, it's interesting. What's the, number of, what's the perfect number in the book of Revelation? Seven. What's one less than seven? So six is a number of man. Six is a number of sin. Six is a number of incompleteness. There are six sins here, interestingly, six sins that they don't repent of. So what are the six activities? What are the six sins that they don't repent of? Okay, so let's look at these. Number one, they did not give up worshiping demons. That's just amazing. Verse 20, verse 20, they did not repent of the works of their hands nor give up worshiping demons. The very beings who brought the onslaught of death and destruction. That's amazing to me. I've been so tormented by a demon that I want to commit suicide, but I like the demon so much I want to turn around and worship it. This comes from the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 32, 17. 
they sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to gods they had never known, to new gods that had come recently whom your fathers had never dreaded. The Israelites were guilty of worshiping demons. So that's sin number one. They did not repent of worshiping demons. Number two, they did not give up their idolatry. Now, now interesting how it talks about idolatry. They did not give up demons of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see, hear, or walk. Deaf, dumb, mute idols that can't do anything. Psalm 115, 5-7. Talking about idols. They have mouths, but do not speak. Eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel. Feet, but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. They look and talk and act like an idol and like a god, but they're nothing. And Paul would say this in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, 5-6, For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many, quote, gods and many, quote, lords. Yet for us, there's one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things and through whom we exist. Okay, so the first two things they did not give up is demon worship and idol worship. Number three, the rest of these Three of, the, three of the rest of the four come from the Ten Commandments. So Romans 13, 9, For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, so what did they not repent of? Verse 21, They did not repent of their murders, which is a breaking of what commandment? The sixth commandment. They did not repent of their sorceries. Now, that's not part of the Ten Commandments, but Paul mentions idolatry and sorcery in Galatians chapter 5, verse 20. Okay, what else did they not repent of? They did not repent of their sexual immorality. That's the breaking of the Seventh Commandment. Adultery, sexual immorality. And then number six, the sixth thing they did not repent of, they did not repent of their thefts, which is a breaking of the Eighth Commandment. Okay. This is the most horrific picture of sinful humanity and rebellion against God, where the terrors of His outpoured wrath do not bring rebels to their knees in repentance. Instead, they're past the point of no return, and would rather to continue to embrace sin than to bow their knees in humility to God. Does there come a point in time where it, it's too late? Now, here's the way I'd answer that. Theologically, I believe there comes a point in time where it's too late. Experientially, do I know that when that is for each person? No. You don't know that either. Okay? So what does chapter 9 show us? Chapter 9 shows us two realities. Number one, this is very practical, demonic influence is a reality in our world. It's real. How we understand it, how do we identify it, how we relate to it, 
that can be kind of sketchy, but we can't deny that it's real. Demonic influence. Okay, number two, lost people need to repent before it's too late. Is that true? Are you guaranteed tomorrow? Okay, so therefore, in light of these two things, demonic influence is real and lost people need to repent before it's too late. How do these two issues affect our praying and our evangelism? How should we be praying in light of this? As a church, for lost people, for our culture, how should we be engaging people with the gospel? You can look at Revelation chapter 9 and say, that's a freaky picture of demonic torment. Or you can look at chapter 9 and say, you know what? I've got lost friends and family that need to know Jesus. And so I'm going to pray for their salvation. I'm going to tell them about Jesus before it's too late. I mean, you can speculate all day long about how all this works, but the bottom, at the end of the day, um, I don't know if that bothers you, but it really does bother me and flabbergasts me and, and makes me scratch my head that after all of that, they still don't repent. How hard does a heart have to be that they don't repent? It's pretty hard, especially since all of that's right in front of their face, which shows you that they truly are under the grip of the world. They truly are under the grip of Satan because they would much rather have they would much rather have their sins, those six sins, they did not give them up, than to turn and see all of this destruction and say, I could care less about all that. I want my sin. Yeah. They'll videotape violence but they won't help. Because they're they're voyeuristic. I want to watch it. All right, guys, questions, comments, snide remarks, clarifications. Yes, Dennis. I want to answer that question. And Jacob knows this answer because we talked about this Monday night in our, in our Bible study. Turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. I, I get, we've got 13 minutes left, so I, I'm not going to let you out early if I can teach you 13 more minutes. The question, that Dennis, the question you're asking is, how can people see all of this and still be so hard-hearted? How can they, like in the face of such clear evidence, how can people do what they do sinfully? You guys want, ever wonder that? Okay, Romans chapter 1 answers that question. So Romans, this is not, obviously it's not in your notes. This is answering a question that was brought up in class. Oh, let's erase the board here. So Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 18. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of those who do what? Suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Okay. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power, His divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they're without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, and animals, and creeping things. Okay, here's the point. 
God has made himself known through creation. Every person can walk out, look at a starry sky, look at a sunset, look at the mountains, look at the Grand Canyon, look at the oceans, look at a rainforest, and they intuitively in their heart of hearts know there's something greater than me out there that put it there. But instead of worshiping God and giving thanks to God, what do they do with that truth? The Bible says, what's the key word there in verse 18? They suppress. What does it mean to suppress? You push it down. It's staring you straight in the face, but what do you do? You push it down. Okay. So when you push it down, and you push it down, and you push it down, what ends up happening to you? Look at what it says there. In verse 21, they became what in their thinking? Futile in their thinking. Okay, I'm going to pick on Jacob just because... I feel the right I have to. Jacob, what does futile mean? Empty, bad. Yeah, empty, bad, worthless. Okay, so they became, they became empty, worthless in their thinking. Okay, what happened to their hearts? They had darkened hearts. Okay, go down to verse... Um, Uh, yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, verse 28. Yeah, verse 28. God gave them up to a debased mind. Okay. So, lost people in the world today without Jesus know God exists. But instead of worshiping God, they suppress that truth. And so we are in a culture of people who have futile thinking, darkened hearts, and debased minds. And what do they do? They make a great exchange. What do they exchange? They exchange the glory of God for idols, and they exchange the truth of God for lies. So we are living in a culture of people who don't want God, they want idols. They don't want truth, they want lies. They suppress the truth when it's clear in front of their eyes. They have futile thinking, darkened hearts, and debased minds. Now you multiply that by a lot of people in a high concentration of an area, and that's why you watch the news and you think, why is it so wacky out there? Romans 1.18 and following. So something's got to happen to people in order for them to get out of this state. And the only way it's going to happen is God's got to do something in their hearts and their minds to, to bring them to salvation, to, to show them their need for a Savior. Evangelicals going apostate, you mean? Popular apostate, same thing. What do you mean? Like, oh, like just like evangelicals that were once solid that are going like making making compromises. Well, that's predicted in the Bible too. First Timothy, yeah, First Timothy chapter. 
Let me find it real quick. I think it's chapter 4, verse 1. Yeah, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. The Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. The Bible predicts there's always going to be false teachers and people that are going to fall away from the truth. Okay? But are they saved in any way? Great question. If you are truly saved and you're one of God's elect, I do not think He will allow you to fully and finally embrace heresy. If you're truly saved and you're falling into that, I think He will discipline you to get you back. If you end up going full bore that way, I can't say for sure whether you're saved or lost because I don't know a person's heart, but if they never repented, it's probably evidence they were maybe never saved in the first place. Does that, does that make sense? Okay. So I don't know if this answers your question, Dennis, is why people, the clear thing, it, it, I mean, obviously they're, they're darkened in their hearts and minds and they're... And they're I guess, uh, is this an example, uh, as you said, as that verse speaks to you, as you described how people couldn't repent after seeing that? Yeah. And I think it's a microcosm of what we see today where it's very clear, and, or not very clear, but in the sense of how you right in front of you. I mean, I, it may not even be Christianity, but common sense. Sure. And how you treat another person. It's, just, it's their parent, but they're apparently not. Yeah. Nick, did you have a question? Define repentance or the action of... Define repentance? I mean, I understand what you're saying, but how do you... Yeah, yeah, repenting is a, um, first of all, it's something that God has to give you in your heart. You can't produce repentance. God has to grant it to you. It's the point where you understand your sin and you agree with God that it's wicked and it's sinful and you hate it. And it's not just that you confess it and say, I'm sorry, but you actually turn from it and have a change of mind. You change your mind about yourself I'm a sinner, I deserve, and then you, you actually, repentance is more something that's done inwardly through the work of the Spirit, but it manifests itself in fruit of a changed life. Does that make sense? So repentance is more an attitude of the heart that the Lord works in you through conviction of sin and brokenness that eventually will lead out in the fruit of a changed life where you're, you're going in a different direction and not doing the things you used to do. It doesn't mean that you're, that you're perfect and you never sin. It just means that the, the whole course of your life has made a 180-degree turn from where it was before. There's like a noticeable difference. Does that make sense? Does that answer, does that answer the question? Okay. So in Revelation it said they didn't repent of those things. If they would have repented, it means would they what? They would have stopped doing them. They would have been their lifestyle anymore. Okay. Anything else in the last few minutes we have? I told you guys Revelation is going to be sobering. It's not fun type stuff. I mean, we're getting to the part of it where it's like, ew, this is kind of some hard stuff. Well, sure. No, I can't say. I haven't read much of the Quran, so I don't know what they're... they're... It's, 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 it's,
mirror image in reverse. So for what we read in the Bible, okay. working backwards. Okay. Huh, interesting. No, I've never... No, I try to stick with the Bible. Yes, go ahead. <laughs> What's interesting, you know, you're talking about people of the future or now with this futile thinking, darkened hearts, and debased minds. It's so interesting that it talks about in Revelation, which we haven't gotten to there yet, but after the thousand-year reign or after being with Christ for so many years, people again rebel. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, yeah, it, it baffles me why, I mean, it just shows me how hardened people can be in their sin that they are unwilling to repent. So let me leave you with one verse. Turn to Romans 2, verse 4. This will be what we close with tonight. <coughs> Romans chapter 2, verse 4. Do you presume... On the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. The reason you still have another breath and the reason Christ hasn't come back yet is because God is showing you kindness. And that's not meant to lead you to live however you want or to keep embracing sin. The kindness of God and the delay of God is to lead you to repentance if you're a non-Christian. Um, so... Don't use God's kindness that He hasn't brought judgment yet as an excuse to continue in sin. Look at it as God's giving you another opportunity to repent. So, All right, let's pray. And then next week we'll, we'll dive into chapter 10. Father, thank You for this uh, sobering message tonight. Lord, it's, it's a hard chapter. We think of demonic oppression. Lord, we may be, know people that are in the throes of, of demonic issues. Lord, I pray for them. Lord, there may be people in here that are struggling and they're, they're going through hard and difficult times. Lord, I pray that you give them encouragement and strength. Um, Lord, I pray for um, those in our lives that we see that, that are, have those darkened minds and they, they see the, the truth right in front of them, but they won't repent. Lord, help us to pray for their salvation and would you just work in their hearts and lives to bring them to faith in you, Lord. Help us to look at Revelation chapter 9 and see the urgency that uh, we, we can't be complacent, but at least should lead us to share our faith and to pray for lost people and to be concerned about our culture around us. And so, Lord... Uh, give us strength, give us grace uh, to be the people you've called us to be. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.